This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Don Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityandcaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is a Southern California artist that focuses on abstract and figurative painting, as well as sculpture, printmaking, and music. He's the author of an extraordinary retrospective on his work entitled Tree of Life. He shares the amazing sense of accomplishment he feels when filling up a sketchbook, his affection for the quality of a state sale paper, and his ability to get out of the way so that the art can be made. Coming up is a colorful conversation with the uniquely talented Tim Biscup. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La 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 la, la 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 la. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's a little chilly, but I'm I'm okay. I'm Southern California wuss, so that's what I get. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> is that something you got from your 23andMe report? What percentage of wuss were you? Yeah, 100% wuss, oh. <laughs> as it turns out. I was hoping for a better number, but what are you going to do? It's science. I'm going to dive into something I read in your book where you talked about not being uh, so much being an artist, but understanding your artistic mind. Can you kind of clarify what you meant by that? Hmm. I mean, I think that there's a certain amount of sensitivity that I struggled to cope with when I was younger. It was just like general feeling of looking around and going, that that looks dangerous, or this person is giving me weird a weird vibe, or generally like emotions floating around. I was definitely like the thermometer for that kind of stuff in my family. And I was always saying, hey, everybody, let's not do this. And uh Eventually, it turns out that that's what it means to be an artist, is to be very sensitive to your surroundings and that your job or uh, what I figured out my job is, is to basically like translate my version of reality into a painting or sculpture or whatever and show it to other people. And they can go, whoa, you see the world that way? How interesting. And that's it. That's really amazing to me. I mean, that's a great explanation. Thank you. Because you're at that time, you don't understand what those feelings or emotions are, right? You don't have no way to express it. Yeah. So when did you start to put that visually into play for yourself or find a way to dive in so that you could express something as opposed to keeping it in the interior? Well, I think it was just a long process of coming to terms with what it means to be human and what it means to have strong feelings about things and and what to do with that that's actually positive instead of letting it fester or ignoring it or drinking it away or whatever we do to try and get away from feelings that make us uncomfortable. And that's been a lot of therapy, a a little ayahuasca, a little... (laughs) A little hiking, a little, you know, relationship trouble and therapy and blah, 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 all of it. 
Well, one of the things that fascinates me and someone who might not know your work is how there's a great contrast between the whimsy and the color, the thing that invites you in and then you kind of get sometimes get a stick in the eye, Mm -hmm. which is that you look at the title and it's got death or doom or asylum or poison. And then you have to look deeper at the painting and say, oh, I see what's happening here. I think about when I saw in a book that was called Bird Virus. I was like, look at all those birds. Oh, isn't that what? Then I realized, oh, wait a minute. Something's not right. Uh huh. These birds are, something has happened. They're falling out of the sky. Whatever's happening here, there's more to it. It's really kind of a crafty way of giving people the medicine in the sugar pill. Yeah. If that makes sense. That totally makes sense. And obviously that's all intentional. Yeah. There's a way of looking at the dichotomy of thoughts and feelings within your head and putting them out there as something that is cute, but it's holding a gun. And to me, that's the very bipolar way of seeing the world. And that's where my work came from when I started putting it out there was I was trying to deal with those things. And over time, I think it's become more of a unified message of more abstract, not necessarily as look at this beautiful thing. Ah, it's terrible. You know, Um, it's more about just understanding that it's not up to me to really send a particular message to people who look at a painting. It's more up to me to let whatever wild energy is coming from the universe out onto the surface and let other people decode that because I think it gets to be a much more complex and interesting message over time. I mean, I think that's the job of an artist is to make yourself more of a sensitive machine for making messages. I think that complexity, though, is what is very interesting to me because I guess I wonder when you look at a blank page, do you approach it saying thematically, I kind of want to do this? Or your work seems to be somewhat of a currently a bit of a luge run where it seems like you start getting some momentum and discovering it as you go. Yeah, for sure. That's the openness. Noticing things that are in the way of the pure creative output that I search for are things like business and galleries and criticism and all kinds of things. And so I think searching to make myself more of a um, clear thinker, I meditate, I get outside and run and hike and things like that. And making art has become a part of that, a part of that way of sort of stripping away whatever stories I've told myself my whole life that I've come to rely on to say, I have to question all of it. I have to let all of it be nebulous and let what happens when the graphite hits the paper be its own thing and not search to control it. Because I have this part of my mind that says, oh, that line right there, in the first line that I make, that line right there, is a chin and you should make some lips now and then you should put a nose on. and the natural inclination to like build something that your mind is telling you to build i have to shut that off and say no we're going to make art here and it's going to not be that and it's going to be and i'm just going to let this happen and i'm going to let that happen and all of a sudden whatever comes out is something that i never could have imagined when i started that first line because I defied the part of me that said, let's go with the thing that you're supposed to do. 
That blows my mind. And I'll tell you why. I went to Instagram and was watching you do that. You're working, I don't know if it's a present project or previous, but mm -hmm. a show of hands, all yeah. of these various sort of hands. And somehow you stay on the page. <laughs> <laughs> but but when you watch that graphite, I kept looking at it. I go, oh, this is, I, he didn't seem to be making any plans here. And it's like you're on a Zamboni just going on the ice and wherever it takes you to clean it off to, to change it. But at the same time, you're using that graphite to have sort of a heavy line and a softer fade. And it's very, it's hypnotic. It's really interesting. So I would say who, if you're listening now and you want to understand what we're talking about, go to Tim's Instagram and you'll see a variety of times that he puts that graphite to the page and essentially is headed downhill gravity's just pulling you into the art. Yeah, exactly. And that's years of spending countless hours on paintings and, you know, staying up all night trying to finish things for a show. And all along, for at least the last 15 years, I think, I've been doing these graphite drawings as a way to sort of loosen up and get in touch with what I'd like to do. And those are sketches a lot of times for bigger paintings. And I had a friend that was over at my house and turned on his camera and took a video and posted it online. And I was like, oh, whoa, I didn't even know I was using both hands because I use one hand to turn the paper. And that's like dancing. I didn't know I was doing that. And so he posted that and everybody went crazy. You know, people were like, whoa, what the hell? And I realized that there's something more to this technique, this thing that I was just doing as a like off thing, you know, um, as a sort of meditation. And all of a sudden, it's something that I'm concentrating most of my energy on. And then during COVID, while I was not able to do all the usual things that I do, I just devoted a bunch of energy to things like organizing and cleaning up my house and moving things around. Obviously, my studio is really clean. And <laughs> thank God, this is a audio only <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, but while I was doing that, I found that I had very little time for making art. And so I devoted myself to this graphite drawing practice of just sitting down and doing a few drawings every day. And it takes me 10 minutes or whatever. And I put a video of me drawing a hand on Instagram and all of a sudden 2 million people had seen it. And I had a whole bunch more followers. And it's just fascinating to me that something that I did as a that's all about economy of time and gesture and everything is the thing that communicates with people so clearly. And I think that's because there's very little in the way of whatever's happening inside of my brain that's coming from wherever and going directly out into the camera and then to people. And it's the fact that it took little or no time, barely any time to do is is good. But I think the simplicity and the notion that you're in a flow state, even when you describe not knowing what you were doing until you saw it afterwards, means that open conduit that you were talking about, that's an exercise that so many more people need to know. If it's meditative or whatever, even just that it's a, a discipline of craft to be making art to be in the process of making art and getting rid of the judgment hat. Yeah. That judgment hat is a killer. Absolutely. Did you find earlier in your life that you spent a lot of time 
with weight on your shoulders about, is this what I want it to be? Yes. What did that feel like? I mean, that was art school for me. You know, I went to art school in the 80s when looking at Roberto Mata and Picasso and these incredible artists who were just like, you know, they were sending out all this magic energy. (laughs) And I got to art school and they're like, okay, you have to know why you're doing everything and you have to be able to explain it. And you have to, you know, painting is dead, by the way. And if you can make conceptual art that makes people feel like they're in a laboratory, then that's what we're going for. That's going to get you taken seriously. (laughs) And so I had that poison in my head, which I dropped out after two years and just started making music and doing other things. And it kind of crushed the part of me that wanted to be an artist because I thought, okay, if I have to do that, then that's horrible. That sounds like school. Mm -hmm. And so it, it took me a lot of years to get back to making work and putting it on the wall, making what I love and putting it on the wall. And once I finally did that, it felt like that was the beginning of art school for real, you know? Mm -hmm. And I learned all about what it means to make art and put it in front of people and, and why I care. And it turned out that talking about that connects with people a lot more than saying, I was looking for the variability of uh, the human experience and excavating the mind and cultural taboos and blah, 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 art speak, yeah. which leads you into basically nothingness and art is dead. And ugh, you know, that's the journey. I mean, that's the only way to say it. It's the, the journey for me has been to struggle with does anything that I do mean anything or what, what's the point? And I don't know. I I feel like I'm a, you know, worthless human being and all I can do is make these scribbles and nobody cares to, Oh, people do care. And wow, I can make money doing this. And that's exciting too. But I think through all the things that I've had to do in order to clear my mind of all that clutter have led me to a place where it's just me and a piece of graphite and we're pushing it across the page and trying desperately to have that be meditation, to have it be that my whole body is relaxed and I'm moving around the table and I'm, and I'm not thinking about it. And it's just magically appearing in front of me. That's awesome. You know, John Lennon actually said that every child is an artist until he's told he's not an artist. Right. That's the moment. Like you started to feel like, oh, I, I can't do what they're telling me. I don't know the why. I'm not, I'm not infusing all of that historical lingo into my world. So maybe I'm not made for this. Yep. And I think you found the purer form, which is a need to express yourself. And you found yourself in a lowbrow art world where that's a whole different thing than art school's teaching. Mm-hmm. There's humor in that. There's kind of a populist a surrealism that you're working in. Right. That came from inside you. That didn't come from, now we're going to take a course on this thing. Yeah. When I left art school, it was because I wanted to get away from the confines of the art world. And so what was available to me at the time was cartoons and Juxtapose magazine and um, skateboarding and punk rock and and all those things, you know, and experimental music. And so I entered into art from a place of going to punk rock shows when I was a kid and drawing on t-shirts and selling them to get money to get in and buy beer, you know, lowbrow and that pop art scene 
was really the only way in. And there were a lot of things that I didn't really connect to about it. Over time, I think being able to break free of all of it and say, all right, I don't want to think of myself that way. Other people I know will, and that's fine, but I really don't want them to. I want people to think of me as just me and to see my work as its own thing, which everybody, every artist says that, you know, and that's what we want. But I think now having gotten to a point where I'm so in touch with what I do, then I don't really think too much about how I'm placed in history or in modern culture or whatever. Your work is uniquely Pisco. It is, mm. you can identify your work from a distance, close up. It's very much, it's a signature to who you are. And, and I don't mean to label or put it in a box at all. I find that society, media, everybody always seems to want to find a shortcut to tell people yeah. what a thing is or where does something belong. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. There's probably a great quote out there <laughs> you could find where some artists, like, I get that you have to define me this way, but I don't think of myself that way. And just look at the work if you can and try not to think about words while you're doing it. But it's funny, like, I don't know if you know the group Mum and Shantz. There's sort of a movement, mime. It's very creative stuff. Incredible. They don't want to be labeled either. But then what? Do, how do they put them on a show? And what do they say is coming up? What happens is that the people who are doing it get so confused. Yeah. You know what I mean? But that's kind of the fun of watching a group like that is you go, this defies labeling. A huge inspiration for me. Wearing toilet paper tubes on their heads. Yeah. Those people are incredible modern artists at, at a time when I deeply desired that, you know, and watching the Muppet show and Shields and Yarnell and all these shows that were bizarre creative experiences that were ostensibly made for kids, but were really just mind expanding exercises in real art. Beautiful. What other influences print or television or film did you feel were infusing a artistic viewpoint for you? I mean, Disneyland was a big one. Going there when I was a kid, not realizing that I was looking at art made by a bunch of people. I was just experiencing it as a beautiful place full of bizarre and incredible ideas. As I grew up and I realized that there were people who actually made that and that's what I was doing, it all of a sudden made a lot of sense in my teen years. And in my 20s to go, oh, my God, Disneyland is a giant work of art. And I want to be an artist so I can just make whatever I want. And it doesn't have to be Biscuit Land. It can be a painting or something like that. But I'm free. That's unbelievable. And you have brothers that are artists as well? Two brothers. Mike is a painter and also a musician. And Steve, is uh, he works in the digital realm and he plays guitar and he used to do a lot of work with video games and now he's doing his own coding visual art thing that is morphing and growing and he kind of doesn't know where it's headed but it's headed in an incredible place and so we're all constantly talking about where our work is and where it's headed it's incredible to have two brothers that are both artists it's my understanding is your parents were not artistic folks or in the arts in any way were they they weren't they had artistic energy in them you know like my dad was a draftsman and he drew all the time and my mom would constantly make these little doodle i mean her phone doodles were mind-blowing 
just these little birds and flowers and things. And I would just stare at them. I go, oh my God, where is that coming from? And they were told, I think, by people that lived through the depression, their parents, that being an artist is really hard and maybe you should try and be a lawyer or a draftsman. So that's what they did. That was a common pitch, I think. At school, I don't know if I've mentioned this to another guest or not, but there was like a test you took about what career you should go in. So I went and saw the career counselor. When I described that I enjoyed emotional things and I described sensitivity and I described color and different things, they go, well, you're going to be a florist. (laughs) Like that was the outcome. And I was like, wait a minute, what's happening? You're making, like, I was like, that's all there is? I I did read in an essay or in one of the backs of your books that you had an aunt and uncle when you visited there, that their world was clutter and design and danger. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. Who that was? Yeah, Dixon D. So describe describe that world through your eyes, because it's intriguing to me. It was just that one sentence, but I thought, I want to go see that place. Yeah. Gosh, how do I explain them? I mean, he was like a Green Beret guy from the South named Dix Roper. (laughs) He would put on like purple satin dolphin shorts and and roller skates and, you know, cruise around (laughs) Venice Beach. And she she was right there beside him. You know, they were both he had like a big old three wheel motorcycle and they had, you know, they had all these friends that were trans. They brought this friend to the beach one day with us and she was just this gorgeous woman with a full hairy chest and a thing in her in her tight satin shorts and we were so confused but man she was beautiful and she played guitar and and later on we were just like what was that mom and she was just like oh where do i start (laughs) but you know and and it was it was incredible because I looked at these people and I walked in their house and they just had walls full of shelves with weird stuff that they have collected from all over the world. And, and I was like, okay, it can be done. Like people can live with these unusual ideas in their head and have them be on the wall and have them be out and seen by everybody. And they're okay. They're accepted by society and they're, doing their everyday lives, but they're doing it in a really unusual way. And that was a gigantic lesson for me to see that, you know, my parents were pretty square and that was great. It felt very safe and comfortable. But then we went to Dee and Dix's house and it was just like, whoa, okay, let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> when you find out that weird can be wonderful and that you don't have to go to some place, you can actually bring it out of yourself. I mean, I feel particularly lucky to have such a creative community in my life now. I took my kids to California one time and we visited a friend who has a Houdini museum in his house. And we talked to an Imagineer and we went to all these different things. And they said to me afterwards, do any of your friends have a job? And I go, yeah, that's their job. That's their job. They get to paint, they get to draw, they get to make weird shit, they get to work at the Magic Castle. And they were like, wow, that certainly opens up the catalog of things you can do in life when you realize, as you did, those people are making Disneyland from the ground up. Yes, exactly. And for me, to be able to make a decision five years ago that I'm going to stop putting so much energy into showing at art galleries and I'm going to open my own space And I'm just going to do my own thing there and try as hard as I can to not define it and let it just happen. 
it's freed up so many aspects of my work to where I have the same question a lot of time. It's like, this is my job. This is incredible. I bring my daughter down there and she says, let's go to face cats. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Let me just tell people the studio space you have is called face guts. And where's it located? It's in Glassell Park, Verdugo in York. Okay. And is it public? And people, yeah, it's public. People can come in or is it your working studio? It's actually, it's public sometimes. I have it open on Sundays from noon to six, usually. Right now I'm working on an installation, but it's not as open as it will be, I think, at some point. I'm doing a lot of organizing down there and trying to create a space that people can just walk into and it'll all make sense. But, you know, now it's like I have exhibitions, I have a mailing list, I tell people about it and they come and they show up and they look around. But a lot of times it's just an artist from out of town who is coming by and they'll text me and they'll say, hey, I want to see your place. And we'll end up sitting in there and having a conversation and looking around for four hours. And it's just the best. Yeah, it's, it's a place that exudes creative energy and it ends up that some of the best conversations I've ever had have happened in that place, which is the whole point. I love that the signage of Face Guts, I mean, it seems like you took some of your work tape and just put it on the window yep. and maybe on a little sandwich board. And there's something that speaks to your style, which is it's functioning. It's got a name that's intriguing and odd, and yet it's almost got a lemonade stand quality about it. Yep. I, I think that's great. When I started working on Face Guts, it was like, it, it was very lemonade standy. I answered a lot of questions about what drives me in those first couple of years. The way that I organized things was all determined by what was the most enjoyable way to do it. And so what I came up with were things that were seemingly impractical, but what I ended up with was a form of organization that indicated clearly to the viewer that an artist made this. And so it all became art at some point. I realized, oh, I'm making art. I'm moving. I'm The way that I organize my weird stuff in this space is sculpture. And it's like a self-portrait. And if you walk in there and you look around, you start understanding me. And that's it. That's why it looks the way it does is because an artist has done all of it. So it's a work of art. Well, it's neat. And it also makes me wonder, because what I noticed in your work is that there's patterns that are a grouping. Yeah. When I started looking at some of the things on the walls where you did a hundred of something and then put them up, yeah. they do make more sense as a body of work. When did you realize that the collections were the thing, you know, the, the hundred paintings in a book, the 500 business cards, like each one of them is a work of art. And yet it's like all bricks in a much bigger structure. I think partially that's a way of getting away from the end results and just saying, okay, I'm working on a project. Like this painting is just part of 500 paintings. So however it looks, it can look however it looks, because the painting next to it is going to clarify something about it and the painting after it. And 10 paintings together will say something that is, I couldn't be said with one painting and a hundred, 500 paintings. You're into the mystical 
then. And what you take from that whole body of work is a true understanding of who that person is or what they're feeling over those 10 years that it took them to make those paintings. Yeah. The project that you're talking about was the Jackson 500. And that was a exercise you did where you made 500 paintings on business card size paintings and collected them over a long period of time. And I, I saw it in a book form and that was named after your grandfather. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. My grandfather, who was an, an incredible businessman. And there was some reason in there that I just thought, I want to name this after grandpa. And I don't really know why, but it sounded good. And actually, to be honest, I'm still working on the last 40 or 30 of those paintings. Volume five of that book has still not come out. It's been over 10 years. <laughs> okay. It's going to happen. I'm still working on it. I read about a book, a little sketchbook that you had in Venice, Italy. Will you tell me, that sounded like the beginning of working small. Will you just tell me a little bit about that sketchbook and how that formed some of your thoughts? Well, I think the beginning of working small happened when I was working in animation and I was working on these giant backgrounds for cartoons. And in order to get a general idea of what the scene was going to look like, I would do comp and it was postage size, little piece of illustration board and some gouache. And I would just paint out the general like shading and, and color placement on that. And I got used to that. And I started picking up these little pieces and drawing little birds on them and things, you know, and giving them to friends for Christmas or whatever. Eventually, I just realized oh, it would be nice to have these all in one place. And I bought this little leather bound sketchbook in Venice and took it home and had it next to me whenever I was working on animation work. And I would, you know, make a new painting on every page. And once I filled it up, it was like, oh, this is nice. I like the completeness of this, you know, the sense of, of accomplishment, filling a whole sketchbook, because that wasn't something that I generally did before that. You know, now I finish sketchbooks all the time. It's part of my practice. Yeah, and that last page is a very interesting moment because you feel, even though you're the one doing it, you feel like you published a book. Yeah. Right at that moment. Yeah, yeah, incredible. The project, The Dog, mm. this was a open installation that you did where you took over a bar and you had open and creativity going. And it did it lead to an art auction, a public? Was that one of your early auctions? Because that, to me, is so an inventive way to get that underground movement of where art becomes a happening. Yeah, that's funny. Those are like bookends. The auction thing happened in the late 90s, early 2000s, where I, I was still working in animation and I saw these amazing artists around me. And, and I went to a party where there was there was an auction and it was beautiful work and everybody was throwing money back and forth at each other. And it was very exciting. And I decided. I wanted to do that, but a little bit more curated and a public version of that. And that's really the thing that launched my career because all of a sudden there were galleries who weren't really paying attention to me or my friends that were coming to these things and saying, Hey, do you want to show? Do you want to show? Where do you, you know, and buying work. And that was how I got into art galleries. And the dog was 2016. So that's more recent. I got an opportunity to do an installation inside a bar in Miami during Art Basel and like covered the entire place with plywood. All the nice furnishings that they had in there were covered in plywood. 
and then Velcro. And then I had all these paintings that you could just pull off and put somewhere else. And I would go in there every day and move everything around and realign things. And, you know, it was all these graphite drawings that were stuck to pieces of plywood. And the guy who was curating the music was Jillionaire from Major Lazer. And so he brought in the greatest DJs in the world to come play music. And so the place was packed every night, lying around the block. And so many people saw my work and we just got to like party in it and look at it the whole time, you know, over like four or five days. And it was better than any art show I had ever had. It was more exuberant and exciting and satisfying. And, you know, selling work off the wall was, it was great. It was very inspiring. And I came home from that and started Face Guts. Wow. It's like your art comes alive. It's not just sitting on the page. It's not passive. That emotional energy, that music, the idea that it's the attraction. Yeah. There's a gravitational pull to the art in a way once you make it that exciting. And all of the ideas and fears that I had about being taken seriously as an artist and all of that stuff drained away because I realized, oh my God, I can do whatever I want. And as long as I have a few people coming in and buying work, then it's paying for itself and paying my bills and I can just be happy. I no longer need to try and go after this crazy dream of being like a big shot blue chip artist who everybody respects and loves and and i can just be a weirdo who makes cool things and sells them to people i mean (laughs) it's which is the greatest title of all yeah it really is one of the great titles when you get liberated when you financially feel enough security that you can do what you like to do yes it it can be scary it can be daunting too i imagine Mm -hmm. that now you have to be doing things. But if you know yourself well, and I think you do, from all the work I see, there's an evolution in the work that is really, really fun. I don't know anybody else where I've looked at a body of work and go, well, this guy didn't take a day off. (laughs) You you know, it doesn't. (laughs) Yeah. It it seems like you're always in a mode of creation. Am I wrong about that? Not wrong at all. I think it's taken me a long time to identify that because literally now when I'm cooking, it's I'm peeling potatoes and it's like sculpture and, and I take pictures of it and I'm like, Oh, this is a good idea for a sculpture. And I'm like, wow, the way that these colors are working together or, or whatever. It's just, it's constant. Every hike is work. It's all making art. And I mean, that's, been the goal i think the whole time i may not have always known it but wow it's satisfying is it ever a curse where like you're an x-men type character where you can't not read people's minds and you're like i know what you're thinking about me Mm. i'm trying to think of a situation where it is because really it feels like a superpower that has been a curse in the past because it's made me I think awkward in in a way that I didn't quite understand what was happening when I was getting all these creative things. And it felt like, Oh, am I going crazy? Uh, am I, is there something wrong with me? Which was a sustained message that I got when I was in high school and even art school, I was a weirdo. Oh, <laughs> and, and I was told, eh, you're not doing it right. You know? And I was like, Oh shit, what am I going to do? 
because not being normal was scary to me. And now, thank God for what's his name, Joseph Campbell and Carolyn Mace and and Clarissa Pincola Estes and all these people who have helped me understand what creativity is and what spirituality is and that all the messages that I got about religion and spirituality and art and everything when I was growing up were leading me away from accepting and loving what I am and towards being afraid of it here. Well, it's an awkward time before you know that you have control of your superpower. I feel like that's what you've done. You've found a grounding. You know when to take off and when to land and how to hover and where to go to see in the other side of the mountain. So you're somebody to be looked at as a person who you're always in a state of developing and figuring out who you are, but you have just a much better freedom in it by being able to sort of go with your feeling, take what's in your mind and put it into some sculpture form or toy form or t-shirt form or record cover or whatever it has been in your life, that those things cumulatively, there's a mountaintop of things where you don't really need other people's approval at some point. Exactly. And I think maybe the biggest realization of my career was seeing that all the energy that I was putting into being taken seriously by other people was truly not the point. And that taking myself seriously seeing myself as an artist and following where I'm being led is the point and truly powerful paradigm shift in my career. And it was like 2011 to 2014, like that was sinking in. And I feel like now these graphite drawings are pure. They feel so pure. And I'll tell you, I had a moment where I realized that the paper that I was using was distracting me that I was buying really nice paper that would have this great surface to it that I was drawing on. And it was every time I did a drawing, there was some part in my head that was like, this is a $4 piece of paper. Oh no, you better not fuck this up. Right. It's precious. It became precious. Yeah. I started buying old pieces of paper from, from estate sales that were basically free and drawing on those. And not only was it a freeing experience to not have to worry about the financial impact, but the quality of the paper had an aura to it. It had been in somebody's life. It was aged. It was discolored slightly. It was basically a piece of nature again, almost. And I was just taking this graphite and pushing into it with no sense of loss if that painting, if that work of art wasn't great. Being able to, to do it and go, nah, I didn't like it, rip, just tear it in half, throw it on the ground, start a new one, absolutely freeing experience to just all of a sudden be like, it doesn't matter if this is a good or bad work of art. What matters is that I'm present for it and I'm open to whatever it's going to be. That's great. When I was in, a, in the height of the pandemic, sheltering in place and feeling a, a great loss of theater performances and people gathering and that sort of thing. I was ordering pizza pretty regularly and I realized that the pizza boxes were canvases and I was painting the insides of the pizza boxes as just a way to do something every day. And I know that if I was doing that on a canvas, I wouldn't have finished one of them, but I would do it and then I would have fun doing it. And then I'd take a picture of it and people would write and say, 
hey, do you want that? I go, no, I'll mail it to you. Like, it's just a pizza box top. But it actually, it gave me a lot of worth to be creating. And then to have people interested in having it, it's like, oh, can we have that peacock picture for our kid's bedroom? Yeah. Give me your address. I'll mail it to you. Amazing. It sort of changed being stuck at home. Yeah. It, it did feel like there was something going on there. I'm curious about the evolution of your signature. Mm-hmm. Because it always feels like an artist's signature is their mark. Yep. And did you notice a change in that at different times and where it is now versus where it used to be? Mm-hmm. It's been constantly changing since I was in my teens. And I was just thinking about this the other day because I was signing an edition of this book that I made, this kind of like weird little art project. And I had to sign a hundred times. And I've noticed that usually the first few look a little clunky and off balance. So I was warming up. I was writing my signature over and over and over again. And I I realized, wow, I really care about this stuff so much more. I was writing numbers over and over again because I was like, how do I want to make my threes? I, I want that choice. And I thought, I want this signature to send a message to the people who's looking at it, who are looking at it, to kind of understand something about me and to have it have a sense of personality to it. And I knew it always had personality to it, but to hone that and make it an, an aesthetic, perfect aesthetic version of my signature is a, another part of being an artist, I think. The graphite drawings, because I do them so, do so many of them in succession, every one has its, its own dance piece, you know, its own little orchestrated thing. And the signature is the same thing. So the fact that I've come from putting initials on the front of a painting, sometimes really big, and sometimes spelling my whole name out on a painting this big in some cases, to now signing everything on the back and thinking, well, maybe I could figure out how to fit my signature on the front of one of these and make it work. But a lot of times it doesn't. I, I want to keep it on the back because I don't want it to distract from the purity of that form that came out. It's another way that a part of me develops and I get to watch it and try to make sense out of it. And it's really entertaining. There's some humility in that too, though, in letting the painting be itself and not necessarily be branded with your name by putting it on the back. Right. I mean, in a way, your signature is the style anyway. Yes. But we were talking to an artist, a paleo artist Hmm. named Gary Staub. What he does, paleo art is... He makes full-size mammoths and megalodons for science museums. And I was sort of like, hmm, do you sign your work? And he goes, oh, God, no. I don't want them to think an artist made this mammoth. I want them to think it's a real mammoth. Yeah. He was beholden to the idea that if he had to put mud on it and blow dust on it to look like it was just dug up, that's how he did it. And I thought that was just a really very mature and humble way to approach his work. Yeah, yeah. You wrote a book or put together a book, a retrospective work called The Tree of Life, a full coffee table book. I Hopefully that's not an insult. Thank you. No, that's great. Coffee table implies it should be sitting out all the time. Yes, I like that. Uh, it doesn't mean put your coffee cup on it. Right. You can do that too, though. Right. Did that come together out of the cleaning and organizing of your world and having the time to do it? Or had you been building up to wanting to put all your work in a volume that could be seen on a in a different way? I always knew I would do that. It's more a question of figuring out the time when I had the energy 
And when I got the sense of like, here's a good spot to to do it, and it was around turning 50, and it worked magically in my life because it was at the same time that I was doing face cuts and reevaluating what it means to be an artist, and and I wrote a autobiography part that's in the back that was really half of the work was making that make sense and feel right. You know, I always knew I wanted to do it. I always knew it was going to be a gigantic pain. And I ended up spending four years doing it. And it was it was great to have it done. And there was a part of me that had a huge letdown at the same time. And it also brought on, I don't think it brought on, but I think it was it coincided with major midlife crisis, depression and anxiety and, and rethinking everything. So it feels like it's a much bigger thing for me than for anybody. It bookends things, not to be too direct. It was a way of saying, all right, here's what I've done so far. Here's how it makes sense. I loved the first time I put it down in front of somebody and said, here's my book. I was like, wow, this is me. This explains where I am right now in my life. Since then, it's been a couple of years. There's a whole big missing part of it, which is the, the last couple of years but that's for another book. And um, it does feel incredibly satisfying to have something that I can hand to people and say, this is what I used to do. I think what happens is your subconscious is working on your legacy while you're physically doing it. You're like, how do I want to be seen? What do I want to share? If I were not around, this book speaks for me for that period of my life. Yeah. And so you do have a tendency to scrutinize and labor and judge while you didn't judge making the work you begin to judge whether it fits into that volume yeah well i I found it a beautiful book i love the autobiographical stuff at the end it actually helped me understand some of the work Uh, just in general just knowing you grew up in woodland hills and knowing you went to disneyland it was far more a magical extension of your world than being in omaha where i grew up (laughs) where we had to go a long way to get to a Disneyland. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You had a lot of inspiring fields out there. Yeah. Right. That's we, we used to always say outstanding in our field. Yep. (laughs) And it was literal. And we were like, what does that mean, dad? What does it mean that we're standing out here? We'll go out there and find out. One day it'll matter. (laughs) What does it mean to you? Yeah. I, I, I was drawn to a couple of pieces. I liked the painting that was the Bluebird Band, I think it was called. Yeah. It was a really cool, a lot of blue tones in it, but there were jazz musicians and bluebirds. And it just, I don't know what it was about that. I guess maybe it was a whole idea that that was visual jazz vibe that your work exudes. Yeah. And that kind of really leaped off the page to me. And of course, the other one that was what I was naturally attracted to was Hazel's field Mm. because the name, Yep. you know, when you grow up with the last name, Hazel, it's not a sexy name for a boy to have, (laughs) (laughs) especially if the teacher reads the name backwards and roll call Hazel Patrick and everybody thinks you're uh, some bombshell girl scout or something. It was humiliating, but that was all again, as you said earlier, when we're forming our identity and who are we and how do we fit into this world? Mm -hmm. I I feel like your body of work makes a clear definition of who you are and where you fit in the world. Mm -hmm. And it also is an open door to do whatever you want moving forward. Yeah. People are interested in your 
expression mm-hmm. even more than the history and all of that sort of thing. I'm grateful that you had taken some time with us. I would encourage folks to go to your Face Guts Facebook page or go to Instagram and see all that really cool graphite work. And maybe just before we go, tell me what about graphite that's sort of working with a piece of margarine or something? Mm-hmm. Like, what is it about that that is works so well for you? Um, it's like when you're working with a brush, a lot of times it's like you're working with the very tip of it. And the line, you, you can kind of play with its energy and get it to be fuzzy and all that stuff. But that graphite, the fact that I use it on its side and I'm pushing it, it gets me out of the space where I feel like I am creating a line. I'm creating a shape. I'm creating a dimensional form when I'm using that. There's always this sharp edge on one side, and then it fans out into nothingness on the other side as much as possible. Having there not be the kind of traditional idea of a shape being drawn or a sketch takes it off into somewhere else. And and I'm just trying to, it is like margarine. It's like I'm spreading butter, you know, I'm spreading it out on, but it's such a refined tool. It's so like granular and the paper is so pure. And it's like, what I end up with is this smooth thing that is elegant and fascinating and all the years of painting animation backgrounds and painting windows on buildings come back into play because I can draw really straight lines. You know, I have a very steady hand and I can turn it and just pull it back and it's a perfect little pillar. And I don't know, I get so much out of that experience of being able to do that with a block of something. Super satisfying. Well, it's terrific to meet you. I'm excited to see the new limbs on your tree of life as that continues to grow and flourish. Yes, that's what we call a callback. (laughs) Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Pat. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will always hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under the savvy producership of Amanda Rosenberg, with sound editing under the steady hand of Marcus Siniscalchi. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help us grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun. As in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage in circle.